The year is 1987, and American TV networks launch a number of short-lived shows, such as Starman, The Popcorn Kid, and Probe. In a fit of midlife nostalgia and an effort to remind the world of shows they have forgotten, lone podcast pilot Chris Cooling steps into the forgotten TV studio 30 years later. Remembered to obscure TV memories of the 70s and 80s, including short-lived TV shows and made-for-TV movies, this is Forgotten TV. Welcome to Forgotten TV. I am your host, Chris Cooling. Remember that you can support Forgotten TV on Patreon for as little as a dollar a month and become a producer of Forgotten TV. Patreon supporters gain access to Forgotten TV Supplemental, additional podcasts that go beyond the information presented in the show. More on this during the end credits. Links for all the ways to support Forgotten TV are easily seen right here on your device, in the show notes, or at Forgotten.tv. This episode of Forgotten TV was brought to you by executive producers Will Welton and Doc Pinko. Thanks to all for your support. A Forgotten TV. It was January 1983. It was the year Microsoft Word 1.1 would be released. Apple introduces the Lisa computer. And two months later, the compact disc format would blow our minds with the novelty of digital music played from a disc with a laser. School was returning from winter break, and our junior high had just gotten a room full of networked Apple II Pluses and our 8th grade math teacher, Mrs. Huff, was promoted to head of computer lab. And unknown to me at the time, Universal Television had started filming on a TV pilot for a computer-themed show that would become my favorite of the 1983 fall season. The school computer lab was full of off-white keyboard computers, complete with Amdeck Color 1 monitors, networked together into a bank of spinning floppy disk drives. We learned how to program in BASIC, played Oregon Trail, and learned about new services such as CompuServe and The Source, which you could dial into with your home phone line and allow you to read the newspaper, check stock prices, and send something called 
electronic mail to other users. CompuServe combines the power of your computer with the convenience of your telephone to bring you hundreds of online services, like a complete set of encyclopedias and the AP Newswire. It helps you decide on investments, bank, make airline reservations, and shop in the electronic mall. It connects you with other computer owners and offers games that pit you against opponents around the At country. 14 years old, this was my first hands-on experience with computers and when I first realized the power of connected computing. Although it would be another three or four years before I had the resources to buy my first computer, a second-hand TRS-80 Model 4, the school computer lab, as well as hanging out at the local Radio Shack, picking up the free battery of the month, and latest Radio Shack catalog, and Tandy Computer Whiz Kids comic, sated my appetite at the time. And soon, popular entertainment, allowed all wannabe whiz kids to live our computer dreams vicariously. From Tron and war games in the 80s, to hackers in the 90s, and Mr. Robot today, computers and computer hacking has been an often used plot device, featured in scores of movies and TV shows for nearly 40 years. Hello, computer. Hello, friend. Let the hacking begin. I'm taking over a TV network. Hackers of the world unite. Wow, where'd you get this? I'm getting hacked. There's a new virus in the database. What's happening? It's replicating, eating up memory. Uh, what do I do? Type cookie, you idiot. We got a problem. What? Someone synced a rat to one of my servers. A remote access tool. We're being hacked. Freeze there. Rotate us 75 degrees around the vertical, please. Freeze there. I'll create a GUI interface using Visual Basic. See if I can track an IP address. Here, access encoded. Gigabyte of RAM should do the trick. Download it. Uh-oh. Ixnay on the download day. What is it? Bogey. We've been spotted. They're running some real-time intrusion detection. Somebody knows we're in. We should ditch. Keep downloading. They're scanning our services! We're almost there. Keep going. They found a data file. They're gonna get our address! They'll be busted through our door! Keep downloading. But back in 1983, before computer hacking became an overused trope, usually with wildly unrealistic depictions, most people knew about home computers, but didn't have one. And if you ask the average person what a modem was, you'd get a blank stare. That June, a certain movie by John Badham joined hits like Return of the Jedi and Superman 3 at the box office and brought together the concepts of home computer technology, hacking, and teenagers to the forefront, even startling President Reagan at the time. Shall we play a game? All right. War games was the way the majority of people in the Western world were introduced to the concept of computer networking and acted as a commercial for home microcomputers. That hot and dry summer, as middle-class kids started asking their parents for a home computer for Christmas, the dam broke as news of real-life computer intrusions repeatedly hit the news. 
This is Channel 12 Action News. The FBI this afternoon confirmed it is investigating members of a Milwaukee area computer club. For having successfully tapped in to the computer of the Nuclear Weapons Research Laboratory at Los Alamos, New Mexico. A Milwaukee group calling themselves the 414s made news dialing into random computers via modem and landed themselves in some interesting computer systems. A more scattered group calling themselves the Inner Circle instigated coordinated FBI raids across six states, startling some very surprised teenagers. The BBC TV show Micro Live had a hacking incident happen on air when presenters were demonstrating the new Telecom Gold email service. They found someone had accessed their email and left a little message. <laughs> Computer security error. I think Illegal we have uh, legal access. I hope your television program runs as smoothly as my program worked out your passwords. Nothing is secure. The young people that engaged in these activities were often referred to as computer raiders or computer invaders in the news. But when the term hacker was used for the first time by mainstream media on the cover of Newsweek, September 5th, 1983, it seemed to stick. And to the general public, the term computer hacking became synonymous with computer crime, unaware of any previous definition of the word. When Congress returned from summer recess, this was the topic of conversation. All of this media coverage that came on the heels of war games couldn't have come at a worse time for writer-producer Philip Daguerre, whose new show, revolving around kids and computers, that had been in production all year, was about to hit the air that fall. Phil Daguerre started working with Stephen J. Cannell on a series we touched on before called Ba Ba Black Sheep, writing eight episodes and being a supervising producer on 25. He also worked with Cannell on the 1978 TV movie The Gypsy Warriors with Tom Selleck, as well as writing and directing the Doctor Strange TV movie from the same year, covered on Episode 7 of Forgotten TV. In 1981, he created his first series. Don't recall this theme song? Well, just hold on a minute. The show was Simon and Simon, and it originated out of a CBS request to create a series revolving around the concept of a modern-day Butch and Sundance. Having just read a spec pilot script about a divorced husband-and-wife detective team by another writer-producer, Bob Shane, Daguerre hired Shane to work on the first season of Simon and Simon. Shane had written and worked on series like Heart to Heart, Eight is Enough, Knight Rider, and Magnum P.I., and had been shopping around his modern-day Sherlock Holmes TV pilot. Simon & Simon hit the air in late fall of 1981 on CBS, but was not an instant hit, almost being canceled after its first season due to low ratings. Sixteen CBS affiliates weren't even carrying the show, including the San Diego station, the city where the series was set. The outlook was so bleak, stars Jameson Parker and Gerald McRaney lined up other jobs in anticipation of cancellation. 
But the Simon brothers were given a second chance by CBS. The show was given a facelift, moving it to Thursday night after Magnum P.I. and starting the new season with a new, far more memorable guitar and saxophone theme song. The season also began with a crossover episode, a story that began on Magnum and concluded on Simon and Simon, a somewhat early example of TV action-adventure shows that had a shared universe. The idea had been done before with Batman and the Green Hornet in 1966, Charlie's Angels and the Love Boat in 1979, and comedies like Happy Days and All in the Family and their spin-off series. And it is fairly common today on shows that air on the same network. The second season beginning in the fall of 1982 became a hit for CBS and strong competition against the comedic offerings of ABC and NBC in that time slot. By the third episode, Simon & Simon was getting a 30 share, and head of CBS programming Harvey Shepard even called it the success story of the past season. While Simon & Simon was gaining steam on CBS, Bob Shane brought Phil DeGare along to a meeting with Universal Television President Robert Harris to pitch a story idea he had. Bob wanted to do sort of an updated Hardy Boys for the junior high set, a show specifically conceived as a juvenile alternative to CBS's 60 Minutes, which owned early Sunday night with its adult audience, and which the other two networks counter-programmed against, with shows like Those Amazing Animals, The Wonderful World of Disney, Voyagers, Ripley's Believe It or Not, and the Hardy Boys' Nancy Drew Mysteries, with varying levels of success. Phil Daguerre, who it would be an understatement to say was a computer and technology enthusiast, contributed the concept that the characters would use home computers in their investigations, and introduced the title of WizKids in the pitch meeting. Thus, the concept of what came to be WizKids was born. Confident enough that the series could be picked up by either ABC or NBC, in an unusual move, Universal gave the go-ahead to begin pre-production on a series pilot before the show had even been shopped to a network. Somehow, CBS got wind of the existence of a pilot script for the show intended to compete with their popular Sunday night news magazine and obtained a copy of the script from Universal against Bob Shane's pleas to not give them one, since the concept behind the show was to be slotted in the same early evening time slot as 60 Minutes. However, within a few weeks, CBS decided that they wanted to pick up the WizKids pilot. When it came to casting, Bob Shane insisted they cast real teenagers to play the WizKids, which would end up limiting the length of the workdays for the younger members of the cast. By January 1983, filming for the pilot episode of WizKids was underway, with Phil Daguerre as executive producer and Bob Shane as producer, with the two sharing created by credit. Shooting and post-production took place over the next three months, and by April, the pilot was delivered a week over schedule to CBS. Titled Programmed for Murder, the pilot was shown to test audiences, 
who reacted favorably to the screenings. By the time the network upfronts came around the first week of May, WizKids was included in CBS's short list of new shows for 1983, along with Aftermash, Scarecrow and Mrs. King, Navy, and Cutter to Houston. This timeline should put to rest the often-repeated myth that WizKids was based on or decision to greenlight the series had anything to do with the film War Games, which was not released until June 3rd. However, the subsequent positive critical and audience reception, as well as box office success of War Games playing in nearly a thousand theaters by mid-June, was too good of a marketing opportunity for CBS to pass up. All of a sudden, the upcoming series started to be mentioned alongside the increasingly popular film. CBS wants to be the first out with their own show like War Games, a spokesman for the network told InfoWorld magazine. Likewise, the computer escapades of certain youths around the country making news late that summer as the series premiere neared, were also obviously coincidental. But this news coverage influenced negative press coverage of the show, as we'll cover in detail later on. Under the new fall theme, We've Got the Touch, CBS started to run network promos for this exciting new upcoming series. We've got the touch. Coming this fall, Richie and his friends were just four normal kids until they built a supercomputer they used to solve crimes with the help of a friendly reporter. Now, things will never be the same for the Whiz Kids. Coming this fall on CBS Wednesdays. In September, the press release for Whiz Kids read, From left, Matthew Laberto, 17, Jeffrey Jackett, 17, and Todd Porter, 15. Star as high school freshmen who use their wits and computer to unravel mysteries. On Whiz Kids, a new adventure series premiering Wednesday, October 5th, 8 p.m. 7 central, on the CBS television network. Attached was a press photo of the three actors. The press release inexplicably made no mention of Andrea Elson, 14, cast to play Alice. Nine-year-old Melanie Gaffin, cast as younger sister of Richie, or the adult actors, Madeline Kane as Irene Adler, Richie's mother, or series regulars Max Gale and A. Martinez that would come along in Episode 2 as reporter Farley and police Lieutenant Quinn, respectively. Lieutenant Quinn is married to Farley's sister, making them brothers-in-law. Fifteen-year-old Richie Adler's hobbies include magic and working on his extensive homebrew computer setup named Ralph. Richie is skinny and pale, wears glasses, isn't overly athletic, but does occasionally go running. He's a self-identified computer hacker that uses the pseudonym Kilroy, runs a makeshift computer club, and hangs out a lot with Ham and Jeremy. He knows more about computers than his computer lab teacher, Mr. Zachary, and is sometimes asked by office staff to provide computer support, to the irritation of Mr. Zachary. Ham likes to play drums, is athletic, likes to look at his muscles in the mirror, and is the freshman class president, and don't you forget it. 
Jeremy is a real hotshot. He likes to play Tempest, race go-karts, pop wheelies on his BMX, and is quick with that most 80s of juvenile retorts, your mama. Alice is the most artistic of the bunch, whose interests include ballet and orchestra. Alice is new to the group and joins them in the pilot episode. They all like to ride their BMX bikes everywhere, except for Alice, who rides a 10-speed, since they are too young to drive. All the kids are in Mr. Zachary's first-period computer class. Together, they are the Whiz Kids. Now, before we get into it, just a word about the word hacking. I admit hacking is a loaded term. Before WizKids, and long before the world of White Hat, Black Hat, Gray Hat, and Script Kitties, a hacker originally referred to somebody that used technical skill to make computer or other technical hardware work. Hacker culture originated in academia in the 60s at places like MIT, UC Berkeley, and Carnegie Mellon U. Before practical home microcomputers became commercially available, Hobbyists like those of the Homebrew Computer Club in Menlo Park, California, would hack together working microcomputer systems, and some members would end up disrupting the technology industry, like Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak with their Apple computers, and Steve Innes, who would go on to design cell phone touchscreens. The term came to be used to more specifically describe those proficient at computer programming and making computer systems work. The public at large, however, was introduced to the term in that September Newsweek magazine, featuring 17-year-old 414 member Neil Patrick's smirking face in front of his TRS-80. Thus, a month before the premiere of the show, the term changed meaning from when the WizKids pilot had been filmed, and hacker now meant one who gained unauthorized access to computer systems, with nefarious purpose or not. My usage of the term from here on reflects this more commonly understood definition by the general public. Episode 1, Programmed for Murder, aired October 5th, 1983. Where possible, I'll include the original network teasers that aired before each episode, not heard here in the U.S. since the original airings. You're a real computer nerd, aren't you? Pretty awesome, huh? Welcome to the club. You're not supposed to be able to do things like this.
the WizKids discover a skeleton on a property near their home that is coveted by corporate developers. The skeleton is supposedly that of Shirley Harrison, daughter of Thelma Harrison, the property owner, dying in the hospital. In reality, Shirley is very much alive, but not for long, as executive Mr. Osgood at NASCorp Construction Division needs the Harrison property to complete a planned community, and with old Mrs. Harrison gone, they need to get rid of the last surviving family member. The kids' investigation includes actual legwork, digging up an empty coffin in the cemetery, sneaking into the hospital, Ham making off with his brother's car, and with the help of Gallagher, a friendly reporter from the L.A. Gazette, discover the plot to fake Shirley's death and kill her for real to be able to buy the property at auction. Taken prisoner, Richie uses a networked computer terminal to mess with the phone system, ventilation, and sprinklers at NASCorp headquarters to cause chaos and engineer an escape for himself and Jeremy. They end up shooting the bad guys with a fire hose, as well as saving Shirley from being murdered, as the bad guys are hauled away in disgrace, as the Whiz Kids make the front page as heroes. Written by Philip Daguerre Jr. and Bob Shane. Directed by Corey Allen, an actor in the 50s, he started directing TV in the 60s with episodes of Dr. Kildare and ended up working on a number of 70s and 80s TV shows like Hawaii Five-0, Barnaby Jones, Police Woman, Dallas, and several episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation and Deep Space Nine, including Encounter at Farpoint. Guest stars Michael Horton. Star Trek fans might recognize him as Lieutenant Daniels from the later Star Trek movies. Jonathan Banks, later known for his role on Breaking Bad, James Whitmore Jr., and Don Dubbins. 94-year-old actress Mary Earle was elderly Mrs. Harrison. She started acting at age 78 and was on Green Acres, The Bob Newhart Show, and played Maud Gormley on The Waltons. She died almost 13 months to the day following her WizKids appearance. If you pay attention during the credits, you'll see Adrienne Daguerre, credited as Linda, student in the kids' computer class. Adrienne is the daughter of Phil Daguerre. The pilot episode introduces us to our four main characters, as the boys have a newcomer to their group, Alice, a girl they knew from their computer class, but joins them on an adventure for the first time. This episode also introduced viewers to Ralph, Richie's ad hoc patchwork computer system, and not really a whole lot of hacking. In an age before instant messaging or texts, Richie frequently dialed into the newspaper's computer system simply to display text messages on Gallagher's word processor. You know, instead of doing something inefficient, like calling him on the phone. Richie does use a password brute force attack to access a network terminal and they access the county's property records online. But the original aired version makes it clear this was not unauthorized access in the scene that introduces Richie's mom, which was cut for syndication. Other scenes cut from reruns included Richie's microbot Minimover 5 robot arm feeding him a sandwich, seen in the closing credits, and the next day at school, 
where Ralph auto-dialed into the school computer using a back door Richie set up to superimpose a text message for Richie on the screen. This is another thing you'll hear on the episode reviews. You see, all episodes you find online are from a syndication run, where scenes were cut short or edited out for more commercial time. I obtained 13 original broadcast-length episodes and discovered about four minutes from each one missing from these recordings. I'll mention notable scene edits as we go along. The pilot very much played like a young Hardy Boys with a computer, as intended, and the musical score by Paul Chihara perfectly accompanied the WizKids shenanigans and emphasized the lighthearted adventure we were watching. The story behind the WizKids theme will be heard in Behind the Scenes. The pilot got a 13.6 rating and a 22 share, running against the Fall Guy and real people. You'll notice the absence of a couple of characters that were added for the remainder of the series. The WizKids adult ally in this pilot was reporter Gallagher, played by Michael Horton. CBS felt the character was too young to be an adult mentor figure to the kids and wanted the role recast. Instead of recasting the role, the character was replaced with Lou Farley, played by Max Gale in the next episode, and Gallagher is not mentioned again. Additionally, a police authority figure is added in the form of Lieutenant Quinn, played by A. Martinez. The adding of the roles of Farley and Quinn served a practical purpose, as the law restricted the number of hours a day the underage actors could work. The pilot received significant criticism at the time from the press and even network affiliate stations. Articles that ran the day of the premiere chastised the show for its uncomfortable ideas, and the network gave producers further directives for the series, and we'll go into that deeper in Behind the Scenes. Episode 2, Fatal Error, aired October 19th, 1983. <laughs> you can do me a favor, and I'll do you a favor. We just talk back and forth by computer. Why don't you talk back and forth on the phone like normal people? We were all playing this video game you designed. I don't want to hear this. Yeah, you do. Velma Sherry kills people. Whoa! Yo. Put the box down and walk away <laughs> from it. Prisoner Dave Kearns, with computer game programming skills, tricks Richie and the kids into playing his game, which is really a prison escape simulator. When he successfully escapes, he looks up Richie, and so do the crooks he ripped off. As it turns out, he had stolen a million dollars, and not the $12,000 previously believed. Richie messes with the computer systems of a bookie, and we get a WizKids chase, ending in Richie and the gang taking control of a Universal Studios ride to combat the criminals with a fire-breathing dragon as Farley and Quinn catch up. Written by Tom Sawyer. Thomas B. Sawyer started out with a 1978 episode of Wonder Woman, then episodes of BJ and the Bear, Bring Em Back Alive, The Master, as well as being a creative consultant for Bring Em Back Alive and WizKids. He became a producer on Murder, She Wrote. In 2017, he published his memoir, 
The Adventures of the Real Tom Sawyer. Directed by Corey Allen in the second of his three WizKids episodes. Guest stars David Aykroyd. We saw him as Dr. Boyer in later episodes of Aftermash. Joanna Kearns, known for her role on Growing Pains. And Mabel King, probably best known for the role of Mama on What's Happening. This episode seemed more serious in tone than the pilot, with heavies willing to beat a woman, people being cut with knives, a convict showing up at Richie's house with a gun, and a shootout. But we got our kids chase ending at the new Adventures of Conan, a sword and sorcery spectacular, which had just opened that year at Universal Studios. It was a 20-minute live-action stage show with lots of live practical special effects and ran until 1993. The air date on this one may be up for debate. TV listings across the country have it scheduled to air on October 12th, with Episode 5, A Chip Off the Old Block, airing October 19th. All internet sources state it aired October 19th. What likely happened is that it was delayed a week, so it wouldn't compete with Game 2 of the World Series, airing on October 12th, and the intended episode for October 19th was shifted down the schedule. This episode featured war dialing, password brute force attacks, and the lamest-looking video game this side of E.T. that looked terrible even for a home game in 1983. As far as war dialing, perhaps a little clarification for those unfamiliar with pre-internet networking. Just like in war games, Richie is not using an online service, but is having his modem directly dial up another computer over the phone line. War dialing software would dial each possible number in a prefix, usually overnight, logging when a computer answers the call and disregarding the human voice answerers. Later, you would dial those numbers via modem and see if you could get into a system, and you usually didn't know what computer system you were dialing into until you were into it. As far as security, some systems had few, if any, security measures in the early days, as they were used and administered by people like business managers and accountants, not computer security experts. Many systems would give you an idea of what computer brand you were dealing with from the prompt on the screen and what the default login and password might be. The majority of the time, they were not changed. Or, many times the password was weak. One system the inner circle dialed into literally used the letter A as a password, which is why Richie's brute force password cracking scene was not unrealistic for the time. War dialing got its name from war games, and in the DVD commentary, the writers claim to have invented the concept. However, I found references to this practice prior to the movie, when it was called hammer dialing, or demon dialing, but certainly the movie influenced this concept to the masses. Before the end of the summer, kids indeed were engaging in war dialing. Fast forward nearly 20 years and the practice of war driving became popular. Driving around looking for available Wi-Fi locations. Some enthusiasts would even draw symbols in chalk on buildings or pavement to note open Wi-Fi networks inspired by the old hobo symbols of yesteryear. Apart from the likelihood of a man in his 30s in 1983, working for a bookie 
having the skill to program a video game in prison, and be able to get in touch regularly with strangers on the outside, especially random minor children, I give the computer activities in this episode a plausible rating. This episode has five scenes of varying length cut from some syndicated airings. However, my copy had one of the scenes intact. Scenes included Alice tending to Dave Kern's wounds while the other kids made him sandwiches and coffee, as well as Lieutenant Quinn's reaction in the Adler living room to the news that the kids had helped Kearns escape from prison. Episode 3, Deadly Access, aired October 26, 1983. I called two days ago to report that someone had been illegally accessing our computer system. Oh my God. There is no statute of limitations on what this stuff does. Can I help you guys find something? My name is A.J. Simon. He's a private eye. What's so neat about a private eye? It's the Simon and Simon crossover episode. Just one Simon, though. Hired by a Mr. Sanders to penetration test the Garth Chemical Company's computer system, Richie spends several evenings working on this instead of hanging out with his friends. He unwittingly discovers a secret project where the company was developing deadly nerve gas that would kill, then chemically leave no trace. When Sanders disappears, the kids sneak in and find A.J. Simon also investigating the place. When the man in charge deletes the files, Richie's copies provide the evidence needed to arrest him. We get a WizKids chase with go-karts this time. AJ stops a would-be nerve gas attack. Cheryl plays Frogger on Ralph. And AJ flirts with Alice. Written by James Crocker, he's credited with five episodes. He worked on the 1985 and 2002 Twilight Zone revivals, as well as Deep Space Nine, Lois and Clark, and Seven Days. Directed by Corey Allen. Guest stars Gary Frank, best known for his role on Family, familiar face Richard Anderson as a bad guy, and Jameson Parker as A.J. Simon. The stakes are raised in this episode as it is revealed the bad guys are making nerve gas to sell to the highest bidder. Who the buyers were and what they were planning on doing with this chemical weapon isn't clear, even in the full-length episode. The incredibly serious consequences of this plot is offset by the kids having fun with their go-kart racing. And of course, everything is wrapped up neatly at the end with a freeze-frame ending, as was ubiquitous in 1980s TV. A scene cut for syndication showed Alice and Richie copying data onto discs at school and some character development. We also revisit Ham's crush on Alice and dialogue specifically names Canyon High School as the school that they attend. This episode features a very early use of email, a logic bomb, and some actual hacking, albeit with permission, as Richie intentionally plays with data files and crashes the program to gain access to the system, which sounds very similar to what the 414 kids did when they accessed the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York, as we'll talk about later. 
The next night on Simon and Simon, the Whiz Kids make an appearance on the episode Fly the Alibi Skies. Rick and AJ call upon the Whiz Kids' help in an investigation to find a missing man. When he turns up murdered, the brothers need to disprove the alibi of the killer. The Whiz Kids search the airline records and find the killer fleeing the country. The kids stall the plane by typing bogus instructions into the flight control system to get it to return to the gate so Rick and AJ can nab the killer. Written by Tom Porter, this is the only credit on IMDb for this person. Directed by Vincent McAviti, who did 40 episodes of Simon and Simon, A Whiz Kids, and many, many other shows. The plot of this episode was unrelated to the Whiz Kids from the prior night, so it was a character crossover only. The storylines did not merge or have any continuity from one show to the next. Episode 4, Candidate for Murder. Aired November 2nd, 1983. He's taking pictures. That's amazing. It's a bunch of dots put together by some computer. The deal is on. The money was delivered. I need the access code to the freeway control master computer. It could be a matter of life or death. They've got Jeremy. Who's got Jeremy? The photographer of the Gazette inadvertently photographs a wanted criminal meeting with Senator Boyd, a gubernatorial candidate who Jeremy wants to interview for a class assignment. When Farley has Richie enhance the negative, the photographer is killed, putting Jeremy in danger with the information uncovered. Meanwhile, Ham's infatuation with Alice finally culminates as he asks her out on a date. Written by Bob Shane. Directed by Bernard L. Kowalski, who directed a lot of TV and some films from the 50s to the year 2000, from Bad Cats and Beretta to Jake and the Fat Man and Knight Rider. Guest star Michael Boyle, Michael Young, James Luisi, Tom Simcox, and Matthew Labarteau's mother, Frances Marshall, makes an appearance. This was originally titled, How I Spent My Weekend. In this episode, Farley teaches Quinn how to access the DMV database using the terminal on his desk and sneaks a peek at the password and reveals Quinn's dislike of computers and new technology. Richie is also given the password to the Freeway Master Control computer, turning the Santa Monica Freeway into a parking lot, as well as sending Jeremy text messages on Freeway message signs. And Richie enhances a photograph negative to a likely improbable degree, giving us a very early example of the enhance button TV trope used endlessly on police procedural shows like CSI. Interestingly, the plot has Farley obtaining the passwords to get into systems and not any of the kids. The highway sign scene was accomplished by the prop department building a working model similar to the signs seen on the actual Santa Monica Freeway. Syndicated cutscenes included character development, with Ham playing basketball against his brother to get to use the car, and Alice asking her dad to go to the midnight movie. Episode 5, A Chip Off the Old Block, 
aired November 9th, 1983. $1 million? You can't seriously think one of our students stole that much money. This time you're gonna get in real trouble. What's the deal? Why are you arresting him? I cannot believe that my son is being treated like a thief. I didn't know you could steal money with a computer. The auditors finished at the bank yesterday. Why are you telling me this, Quinn? Richie Adler stole the money after all. A school bully begins harassing Richie, leading to him befriending Chip, another boy interested in computers, who has been making illicit bank transfers to his account to the tune of $2,000 and withdrawing the money. But embezzlers at the bank use Chip's unauthorized access to hide their theft of nearly a million dollars. The police suspect Richie, who uses his expertise to audit the bank's system to assist in finding the real culprit, putting him, as well as the family dog Rabies, in jeopardy when he threatens to uncover who the crooks are. Written by Philip Daguerre. Directed by our old friend Vincent McAviti, who Daguerre used quite a bit on 40 episodes of Simon & Simon. Guest stars Daryl Anderson, Robbie Rist, you might remember as Cousin Oliver on The Brady Bunch, Daryl Hickman, and a young Jackie Earl Haley as a school bully. At 19 years old, Robbie Rist was older than the regular WizKids cast members and told me the highlights of his memories of working on the show was working with Jackie Earl Haley, as well as having sex with his girlfriend in his trailer. Recall that air date issue earlier when TV listings showed this episode scheduled to air earlier than it did? This was clearly written by Phil, intended to be the first regular series episode after the pilot, and was the first one filmed. There are numerous giveaways, some in scenes cut from syndication. There is dialogue that introduces the Farley and Quinn characters and their relation to each other, and Farley comes across as much more of a smartass when dealing with Quinn than he would in any subsequent episode. Farley also practically introduces himself to Ham. It also seems that this is the first time Quinn meets Richie, enters the Adler home, and sees Ralph. Quinn, and by extension viewers, now get an explanation as to how Richie came to acquire his computer equipment. According to his mother, nearly all of the equipment is used, and much of it was sent to him by his father, who was a telecommunications consultant for oil companies in the Middle East. Before the show even premiered, Phil Daguerre called this episode our Mia Culpa story as it was crafted to show consequences for illegal computer activities. Done via computer or not, theft is theft. CBS and critics had expressed concerns over themes depicted in the pilot. Ham has a line that we don't do that anymore when referring to breaking in to computer systems. This is something that we'll explore fully in behind the scenes. The movie War Games is name-dropped in reference to war dialing and Farley uses a Gavilan SC with printer attachment to file his story electronically over the phone line without an acoustic coupler. The Gavilan was the first computer to be marketed as a laptop and sold in the summer of 1983 for $4,000. Episode 6, 
Airwave Anarchy, aired November 16th, 1983. We're going to have a little robot in the family. You guys crazy? The cops are going to be here any second. I want you to tell me how everything works so I can tell the public how it doesn't. Sure. Genius. Bonds. Gems. Drugs. That sort of thing. Sounds nice. Put your other hand in mine. Remember, static is the enemy. Are you kidding me? It's going down right now. A gluttonous criminal mastermind named Digby operates elaborate heists from his RV using a complex computer system and mobile transmitter, giving false messages and instructions to police units in the field, allowing his thieves time to complete robberies without a police response. Richie and the mastermind show up at the computer store for the same CMOS chip, giving him away, and a suspended Quinn teams up with Farley to apprehend the bad guys. And the kids assemble a Heathkit Hero One robot. Written by Joe Gannon, Gannon started to get a producer credit on some episodes of the show, starting with this one. He also co-created All in the Family spinoffs, Archie Bunker's Place, and Gloria. Directed by James Sheldon, these were the later days of his career. He directed television as early as 1952 with Mr. Peepers, and his resume is full of very recognizable shows from the 60s to the 80s. Guest stars Guy Stockwell and the recognizable Anthony James, often cast as bad guy on shows like The A-Team, Buck Rogers, and Simon and Simon. Quite a few notes on this one. The bad guy in this one performs the equivalent of a man-in-the-middle attack, making police car mobile data terminals believe his transmitter is the legitimate dispatch system sending instructions. He later performs a denial-of-service attack on the dispatch system, overloading it with more requests for police service than it can handle, overwhelming the legitimate requests for service. This may be the earliest on-screen depiction of a DOS attack, now common on shows like Mr. Robot and the BBC's Spooks. The police computer data center they show on screen is absurdly more complex than a police department would have, even in L.A., with numerous open-reel data tape drives, control panels with arrays of lighted, dedicated switches, dozens of technicians in white coats, you get the idea. A place that resembled mission control, not LAPD dispatch. The plot point about static electricity was a little overblown. While direct handling of integrated circuits like Richie was doing does require some reasonable precautions, the episode depicted someone walking up and touching the bad guy while he sat at a keyboard blowing a CMOS chip mounted on a motherboard in an enclosed computer case somewhere. While CMOS chips are hypersensitive to static charges, having this happen while not even handling the board it was mounted on is a little ridiculous. On first watch, I thought that this was the weakest episode so far for a couple reasons. First, the criminal was played with a light-hearted tone, which undermines the story. Guy Stockwell almost seemed to be channeling the obese Mr. Schubert from Man from Atlantis. The lighthearted moments should come from the Wiz kids interacting and their dealings with Cheryl, 
But when the villains are played for comedy, it's hard to take the story seriously, and the show falls into the same trap as did Man from Atlantis. Digby's female assistant, played by April Clough, was more intelligent than she let on, reminding me very much of Ross Webster's Girl Friday, and probably Saturday too, Lorelei on Superman 3 from that same year. However, a second viewing of the unedited version made me realize it was one of the best episodes for showing the dynamic that existed between the whiz kids as they worked on projects, and as Quinn was suspended, he was forced to work with Farley, which served to develop their relationship. Also, Alice again shows she comes up with practical ideas that are often overlooked by the other kids, especially Richie. Scenes cut for syndication included great character development, with Cheryl accepting the UPS delivery of the robot, and Richie composing music on Ralph using a stack light pen, almost certainly connected in real life to a Commodore 64. This detail, unseen in the U.S. since original broadcast, tells us Richie does have an artistic side that was rarely shown, and foreshadows the events of the next episode. The Heathkit Hero 1 ET-18 robot is featured in this episode. The kit form, as depicted, would have cost $1,500 in 1983. You could buy a five-year-old Mustang for that then. Every kid I hung out with wanted one of these, but since it cost the equivalent of $4,000 today, I knew nobody that had one. Like other pieces of technology depicted on the show, I'm sure it served as a commercial for Heathkit who was happy to provide the production with a model as well as the technical assistance to run it. An MSI 8030 is also seen in this episode. This was an older computer from 1977. Richie kept around, which he used to test the CMOS chip using an expansion card. The RV used in this episode is a 1975 or 76-26-foot Vogue motorhome, the same type of rig used in the show's Kojak, The Rockford Files, The Fall Guy, and Simon and Simon. The RV used in 1975's Three for the Road was also a Vogue, but was a 32-foot model. The electronics store Richie shops at in this episode was a real store in Burbank, Electronic City. The storefront appears to now have closed, and now exclusively deals in security cameras and surveillance equipment online. Episode 7, Return of the Big Rocker, aired November 23rd, 1983. I mean the group's name. The computer brains. Computer brains. Punk, Punk is young. Heavy metal rules. <laughs> a rock singer thought long dead turns up at a small-time local music venue and is recognized by Farley, who has Richie digitally compare his voice to the legendary Bobby Lee Jans, which is a match. This throws a wrench in the plans of the NASCorp Music VP, who is releasing an album of supposedly previously unheard songs by Jans, who is worth more dead than alive. 
Farley gets put in danger, Jeremy and Ham disarm a gunman, and the WizKids start a band with electronic instruments. And remember, punk is junk. Written by Paul A. Magistretti, with an uncredited rewrite by Bob Shane. Magistretti wrote episodes of Beretta and Simon and Simon, and the Kolchak episode, The Nightly Murders, was based on his story. During production, I discovered Paul Magistretti died in early 2019 at age 83. Directed by Barry Crane. Marjo Gortner was the big rocker. You may remember him from cult films like Pray for the Wildcats, The Food of the Gods, Sidewinder 1, and Star Crash. We also see a new short-lived recurring character, that of Farley's colleague, Brenda, played by Jordan Freeman. We would also see her on Simon and Simon, The Fall Guy, the short-lived army sitcom At Ease, and the movie Joe Dirt. You can actually hear Marjo Gortner singing the songs featured in this episode. You can't help but notice the similarities between this episode and the 1983 film Eddie and the Cruisers, which had just been released two months earlier and was based on a 1980 novel. Bob Shane actually wrote several of the original songs depicted on the Bobby Lee Jans TV commercials in this episode. And we heard the late, great Don Pardo's voice on these TV spots, watched by the characters. The big rocker is back! Bobby Lee Jans lives again because Golden Archives, a division of NASCAR Music, has made the musical discovery of a lifetime. Golden Archives has unearthed 21 previously unknown masters recorded in Memphis, Tennessee in 1963. All original compositions and performances by the late, great Bobby Lee Jans. So don't delay. Send for your copy of Bobby Lee's 21 unknown hits today. Let's go surfing. This episode features cover performances of a few popular songs, Great Balls of Fire, When a Man Loves a Woman, and Old Time Rock and Roll, the first song even being instrumental in the plot. This might be problematic, or at least incur an additional expense for producing a DVD or streaming release in the United States, due to the music rights involved. I went into this at length in the recent 2019 end-of-year supplemental podcast, which you can hear in the main feed. The main technology featured here was computer voice analysis, or spectrogram matching, which is its own rabbit hole, far too involved to discuss here. Suffice it to say, however, that one couldn't simply record a singer on a cassette recorder from your table in a nightclub and expect to be able to digitally compare it with a commercially produced song and come up with a definitive result. Chalk this one up to dramatic license. WizKids, sponsored by Advanced Formula Crest with Fluoristat. Fighting cavities is the whole idea behind Crest. WizKids will continue. Wow. David Lightman, hold it right there, please. The FBI thinks he's a spy. We got something. What the The Pentagon thinks he's a world power. Mr. President, this is Barry Norad. David. 
and his parents think he's up in his room. All right. Negative, this is not an exercise. What's happening here? Wow. War Games, ready PG. Why buy just a video game from Atari or Intellivision? Invest in the wonder computer of the 1980s for under $300. The Commodore VIC-20. Unlike games, it has a real computer keyboard. With the Commodore VIC-20, the whole family can learn computing at home. Plays great games, too. Under $300, the wonder computer of the 1980s, the Commodore VIC-20. Coming soon, Commodore brings you Gorf, the Wonder Arcade game, and Omega Race in home versions, Commodore. Episode 8, The Wrong Mr. Right, aired November 30th, 1983. A journalism mentor of Farley's ostensibly commits suicide, but Farley refuses to believe she took her own life. Meanwhile, Richie worries about his mom's love life and signs her up for CompuDate, a computer dating service, which turns out to be a scam that pairs young, eligible men with established, well-off women to part them from their money. And the profile for Richie's mom mentioned she was the treasurer of a charity. Our storylines converge when Farley discovers the mentor had signed up for the same service and that she had withdrawn substantial amounts of money unaccounted for. He asks Richie to hack into the company and obtain the files for his mentor and her match. When the kids get the goods on the crooks, we get a whiz kids chase through an amusement park after a $103,000 satchel. Written by Phil Combest, based on a story by Arthur Weingarten and Bob Shane. Combest was story editor on Magnum P.I. and the mid-90s Flipper series. Weingarten was executive story consultant on The FBI and Bring Em Back Alive. However, Bob Shane and Phil Combest had a credit dispute over this one, which went to arbitration at the Writers Guild. Phil Daguerre sided with Combest, who ended up getting the written-by credit. Directed by Michael Hamilton, who has only one other industry credit on T.J. Hooker. Warwick Sims was the titular Mr. Wright. He was seen in films like The Man with Two Brains, Against the Wind, and Firefox. Jordan Freeman returns as Brenda. In the script, the company was originally called CompuMate. I noticed this in several of the scripts. Company names are often changed from script to screen. In the pilot, NASCorp was originally called ATPAC. Also, in the script, the charity benefit was a costume party to which Lieutenant Quinn wore a gorilla costume. Here, Richie again breaks out his password brute force program, and Richie hooks up Farley's Gavilan to a bank ATM to check the balance of an account by inexplicably connecting electrical leads to the mouthpiece of a phone handset. I'm not sure why they did this when previous episodes showed them correctly using an acoustic coupler. The script only mentions Richie hooking Farley's portable computer to the instant cash machine. The technical advisors were asleep at the wheel on this one, or perhaps it was intentionally depicted in a fictional way to discourage viewers from trying this. Also, ATMs were commonplace in the 70s, and you could certainly check an account balance on one in the mid-80s. No hacking required. 
The next two weeks, CBS aired holiday specials. Then, Episode 9, Red Star Rising, aired December 21, 1983. Richie has Ralph print out book report summaries to make their homework assignment easier. But a Russian spy has moved in across the street, and his satellite dish makes Ralph and all the computer equipment go haywire, crashing the operating system and frying all its prom chips. The spies are stealing missile control computer chips from a military contractor. The help of Farley and the authorities, along with a little whiz kid sabotage, prevent a woman from being killed. But even international espionage doesn't get the whiz kids out of their homework assignment. Written by Andrew Gerdot, Steve Kreinberg, and Joe Gannon. Directed by John Newland, who had episodes of Wonder Woman, Police Woman, Peyton Place, and Dr. Kildare under his belt. Guest stars Christopher Stone, John Plachette, and Jeannie Wilson. Several notes on this one. This was originally titled Spy in the Sky, which was somewhat different and included a story revolving around Ham's new dog. Bob Shane confirms with this episode there was a studio directive to modify the script to appeal to an older audience. Bob is actually working on adapting some of the original story elements into a script for a current project. In a scene seemingly lifted from close encounters, Cheryl's toys all come on and run by themselves, including her full-size E.T. in the closet, and the E.T. theme played, which really surprised me. Then I realized both WizKids and E.T. were produced by Universal. When the WizKids sabotage the neighbor's satellite dish, car, and motorcycle, Ham puts a banana in the car's tailpipe, something Axel Foley would do on Beverly Hills Cop, but this was a year before that film was released. Paul Chihara slows down the theme in this one to denote suspense and danger, and it's subtle but works really well. And two other classics are heard, which we'll cover later. One scene deleted from syndication took place in computer class, where Mr. Zachary was teaching basic programming to the students. When Alice asks a question revolving around the use of operator statements, which he is unable to answer, but Richie can. Zachary then dismisses the class, instructing them to practice nesting. Ham then innocently asks Alice if she wants to practice nesting with him. Richie uses a school computer here, an Atari 1200XL. He accesses the Library of Congress using Farley's account, and the script makes clear he had permission. Also, Richie's watch is shown, which is a Casio TC50, which had a touchscreen calculator, ahead of its time when it was released in 1980. With this episode, for the first time, the show falls into single-digit ratings, with a 9.8 something that would plague the series for the rest of its run. The following week, WizKids had its first rerun as CBS again airs Fatal Error. Episode 10, The Network, aired January 7, 1984. A mysterious message left on the school BBS by notorious hacker The Wrench 
containing a phone number and password, leads the WizKids to directly dial into a non-classified NSA payroll system, prompting an immediate FBI response, arresting the kids, and seizing Ralph and all Richie's software. Wrench reveals himself to be an NSA agent, distributing the phone number and password to BBSs and seeing who could get past a technical hurdle. But it's revealed Wrench doesn't work for the NSA. He's a Russian spy, recruiting Richie for a real-life war games to steal strategic defense data from government computers. Mr. Adler, the real NSA, Quinn, and Farley all rush to save Richie, who has a near breakdown when he discovers the truth. Written by Philip DeGuerre Jr. and James Crocker. Starting with this episode, James Crocker comes on as producer of the show, replacing Bob Shane. Directed by Hollingsworth Morse, active in TV directing since 1952's Sky King and The Lone Ranger. With Jim McMullen as Don Adler, Richie's dad, this is the only appearance of this character. Here, we got an episode clearly inspired by war games, and the one with the highest stakes, and played the most seriously in the series. For the second week in a row, we get Russian spies. Remember, this was the Cold War, and the Strategic Defense Initiative, or Star Wars program, was repeatedly in the news. And this was the year Reagan called the Soviet Union the Evil Empire. This episode depicts a BBS, or Bulletin Board System, which Richie operates for the school as SysOp. It also has what I think is the most realistic depiction of hacking in 1983, presented by any episode of the series, up until the last 10 minutes with the War Games nonsense. Kids dialing into computer systems to look around, usually not knowing what systems they're dialing into or what they were looking at. If you couldn't immediately get into a system, you played around and tried different things to see what happened. As I mentioned on Episode 2, some systems were ridiculously easy to access. Now, just what the kids were being charged with was not clear, but the script makes mention of new laws being considered, which I'll talk about later. The episode also makes prominent mention of the NSA, which was one of the three-letter agencies many people had not yet heard of. Farley makes the joke, they are called No Such Agency, something you heard a lot on TV of this era. The set used at the end was impressive for a TV show, and clearly modeled after the NORAD set as depicted in War Games. Interestingly, the War Games NORAD set, with its 12 projected displays and 84 video monitors, was actually more high-tech looking than the actual NORAD situation room at the time. Chip Patterson's name is seen on the BBS screen, showing he still attends the school. The kids have wheels now as Ham buys a beater car from his brother. Herman, the Heathkit robot, makes another appearance. Ham also shows his musical side as he rehearses drums for a school function. And the episode shows consequences for the kids, as Ham is prevented from performing. All the kids are instructed to stop associating with each other, and all face the possibility of jail. Here the show moves to a new night, Saturday at 8, 7 central, against T.J. Hooker on ABC in its third season, 
and different strokes and silver spoons in their sixth and second seasons, respectively. Interestingly, this was the original intended time slot for the show, before CBS settled on Wednesday. It's generally never good when a show moves from a prime weekday time slot to Saturday night, and this time slot proved problematic. First, WizKids was just not a great fit as a Saturday lead-in show, where young viewers would experience a complete tonal shift as CBS aired a Saturday night movie with films like Death Hunt, Body Heat, and Sharky's Machine. Also, if CBS needed to run a longer movie, WizKids would just get a preemption. CBS also aired the Peanuts and Warner Brothers holiday specials. Thus, WizKids was booted off for Valentine's Day, Easter, and Memorial Day specials. The ratings experienced a tiny bump on this and the following week, but returned to single-digit ratings and never recovered. Episode 11, Watch Out, aired January 14th, 1984. Saturday on the WizKids New Night, Richie taps into a TV ratings computer. If some people live and die by the ratings, could the WizKids be next? Ham's family becomes a Statcom ratings household, responsible for calculating TV ratings. Meanwhile, the ratings for a TV consumer watchdog, an old frenemy of Farley's, keeps falling, causing him to suspect rigged TV ratings. He and Farley enlist the aid of Richie to monitor the data Ham's box is sending to Statcom to find out the truth, putting his life in danger. But when Ralph is stolen by a crooked baby formula company, Richie is relegated to using Ham's lowly Sinclair Research ZX81 computer and goes live on the air to expose the fraudulent TV ratings. Written by James Crocker Directed by Dennis Donnelly in his first of two episodes, he was known for working on Adam-12, Emergency, Hawaii Five-O, and Charlie's Angels. Garrett Graham, Thomas F. Duffy, and Belinda Montgomery all guest star. Here we have our second episode written by new producer James Crocker, and I'm beginning to feel the influence of Max Gale on the storyline, as we'll talk about later. Here, Richie performs what amounts to hardware packet sniffing, logging data being transmitted from one device to another over a network. He didn't seem to hack into the Statcom computers, but was able to see what information was being reported. But exactly how this was accomplished was glossed over. As per the network directives, he did so at the behest of adults instead of his own initiative. As mentioned, Richie uses a Sinclair ZX81 in this episode, marketed in the U.S. as the Timex Sinclair 1000, and somehow, without a modem, is able to access the Statcom computer system. The Sinclair had 2K of RAM and a terrible membrane keyboard, mentioned in the show. Aftermarket keyboards became popular for Sinclair users, and you would actually move the computer motherboard and RAM into the keyboard housing, giving you a cosmetically completely different unit. And don't bump that RAM expansion pack. I didn't have one of these personally, but my friend Ethan did, and I remember spending the whole afternoon entering a program in BASIC, only to lose it all when the expansion pack was bumped. 
WizKids was preempted the following Saturday as presidential candidate Lyndon LaRouche bought time on CBS to run a political ad. Episode 12, Amen to Amon Ray, aired January 28, 1984. These children have unleashed the curse engraved on the mirror of death. Richie, what did the curse say? You a tough guy now, huh? Richie, I'm selling the house. Sell it. Who cares? Richie's not himself anymore. And his whole house has gone screwy. Barney said he's gonna name names. A reporter voluntarily cooperating with the police on something like this? I know how to handle squealers like Farley. An eccentric former actor with a private museum hosts a school field trip, which includes an Egyptian mummy, and the kids use Ralph to translate some ancient hieroglyphics which triggers personality changes to anyone who reads it aloud. To reverse the curse, the kids hook up Ralph at the museum. And there's a B-plot about Farley not giving up a source, which was unconnected to the main storyline. Written by Paul A. Magistretti, directed by Alf Jillian. The actor-director was known for stints on The Alfred Hitchcock Hour, Dr. Kildare, I Spy, The Man from U.N.C.L.E., The Waltons, and more. Guest stars from the movie House, Kay Lenz. From Adam-12 and Emergency, William Boyette. And Zelda Rubinstein, known for the Poltergeist movies. In keeping with the use of classical music, the opening of Bach's Toccata and Fugue in D minor is heard. Its use in film goes back to the silent film era. If the local movie house was fortunate enough to have an organ, it was used to illustrate horror and villainy. It was heard in the early sound films Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde in 1931 and The Black Cat in 1934, becoming one of the earliest cliches used in motion picture scores. Scenes deleted in syndication included Walton Dale explaining to Jeremy the cultural significance of his African museum exhibits, and one showing Richie copying Farley's files onto 8-inch floppies. The home of the eccentric Walton Dale was actually a convent for the Sisters of the Immaculate Heart of Mary, located on Waverly Drive in Los Angeles. This was a weird and the most out-of-place episode of the series' run. It played like a Halloween episode that aired late. Outright supernatural events seemed to take place. Honestly, I think the less said about this one, the better. Although it was interesting that the curse seemed to make the affected person change personality to the opposite of normal. I couldn't find specific Nielsen ratings on this one, but it was one of the lowest-rated shows of the week, landing in the bottom five, something that would become commonplace for the remainder of the airings. Episode 13, Made in the USA, aired February 4th, 1984. The Adlers may be in trouble. Somebody's bugged their house. Really awesome. Signora Rivera is a very dangerous individual. My name Rosario. I work for Mrs. Adler. <laughs> you little brats. I wondered where you'd run off to. 
Somebody's trying to kill a man named Carranza. Let's go. It has to be her. Richie's dad is coming to town for the weekend, causing Irene to worry about laundry and household chores. And to her delight, she wins a free maid who proceeds to plant electronic bugs in the Adler home, involving them in an international assassination plot and a revolution in the third world country. The kids enlist the help of Farley's secret friend at the Athena Society when they have no one else to turn to. Written by James Crocker and directed by Max Gale. Guest starring June Lockhart, Alma Martinez, and Dan O'Herlihy as Carson Marsh. Known for his work on Dr. Kildare, The Long Hot Summer, A Man Called Sloan, and Robocop. This episode introduces Carson Marsh and the Athena Society, a story element that would run over five total episodes. Marsh was likely a retired intelligence agent, and the Athena Society seemed to have connections to all three-letter government agencies. Marsh had what amounted to a Batcave computer hidden by wall panels. This story direction ends up complicating and changing the dynamic of the show, adding what amounts to an additional character that needs to be consulted every episode. This story direction was likely the brainchild of writer James Crocker, who was also producing the last half of the season. It's also possible the producers were preparing for the possibility of A. Martinez not coming back if there was a second season. He did join the cast of Santa Barbara in August 1984 and certainly wouldn't have been available for a weekly series on top of that. Also, viewers might have perceived a tonal shift in the show by now. This certainly could be argued that this started with episodes 9 and 10, where it seems there was an effort to widen the appeal of the show to older viewers and introduce episodes with a more serious tone. What once were light-hearted juvenile adventures now feature international intrigue, espionage, and assassination attempts and is reminiscent of the third season of The Hardy Boys, when Frank and Joe became government agents at the Justice Department. Valentine's Day specials aired the following Saturday, and a Charlie Brown special the week after that. WizKids returned with Episode 14, The Lollipop Gang Strikes Back, aired February 25, 1984. I want the money! Well, this is a bureaucracy, Mr. Farley. Someone cut off their social security checks. I was wondering if there's anything that we can do. Would you please notify Mr. Sellers that the computer engineering group is here? And you know nothing about four bookworm types wearing glasses. You are both deceased and non-deceased. You're in limbo. The payroll computer? It says you're dead! (laughs) A gang of senior citizens... Farley names the Lollipop Gang, robs a string of convenience stores, stealing cash and groceries, and leaving LOL spray-painted on windows. The Social Security Administration classifies Carson Marsh at the Athena Society as deceased, and he recruits Richie to investigate. The cases are connected as the SSI checks of the seniors have stopped, leaving them with no income 
because an embezzler at the local Social Security Administration has been siphoning SSI checks from the deceased seniors. So the whiz kids give him a little of his own medicine. And LOL stood for Little Old Lady. Written by Lynn Barker in her first of two WizKids episodes, she also worked on Jason of Star Command and the 1985 Twilight Zone. Directed by Dennis Donnelly, guest-starring Elisha Cook Jr., Whitman Mayo, Sylvia Sidney, and Dan O'Herlihy as Carson Marsh. The kids perform social engineering to physically get into a Social Security Administration office to get a look at their computer system and log into random bank accounts with little effort. This is all done at the behest of Carson Marsh or Farley. It's also interesting how the term LOL is used long before it became an online acronym for Laugh Out Loud. Initially used on Usenet as early as 1989, this initialism has surpassed online use and is now commonly texted and used in everyday conversation. A scene deleted from syndication depicted Farley interviewing a couple of punk rocker types that give him the idea LOL stood for Little Old Lady. Going back to the air date, the writing was now on the wall regarding the fate of the show as the following two weeks WizKids was preempted for other programming and returned with Episode 15, The Sufi Project, aired March 17, 1984. Farley recruits the WizKids to help his investigation of a missing marine biologist, and they uncover a plot involving verbal communication with dolphins made possible via computer, which interests nefarious parties including the friendly marine biologist's assistant that has been helping the whiz kids. Things get complicated when Carson Marsh and unnamed three-letter agencies become involved. Written by Don Boudet, Boudet has very little industry credits, a couple of independent films, and the TV movie Kiss Meets the Phantom of the Park. Story by Philip Daguerre Jr., James Crocker, and Clyde Ware. IMDb states Ware was uncredited for a story by contribution. He worked on Gunsmoke, The High Chaparral, The Coward of the County TV movie, and several TV movie westerns. Directed by George Finnity in the first of two episodes he would do, known for his work on Emergency, Quincy M.E., and Knight Rider. Guest starring Keen Curtis, Pamela Susan Shoup, M.C. Ganey, and Dan O'Herlihy as Carson Marsh. For the dolphin sound effects, the technical consultants used the software Dolphin Dialogue from the small software company Centauri Corporation, available at the time for $39. The trope of dolphins being semi-sapient and used for military purposes has been used in various movies and TV shows like the 1973 film Day of the Dolphin, the third season Wonder Woman episode, The Deadly Dolphin, and the series Sequest DSV. Both the United States and Soviet militaries have trained and used oceanic dolphins for various purposes, such as detecting underwater mines, location and rescue of missing swimmers, and allegedly to carry out kamikaze-style attacks against enemy vessels. The U.S. Navy 
denies ever having trained its marine mammals to harm or injure humans in any fashion, or to carry weapons to destroy ships. Episode 16, Father's Day, aired April 21st, 1984. And people, I want you to stay away from your friend Carl. He's attracting some very dangerous men. Those men never give up. I don't want to hide anymore. What are you doing out there? Those men are waiting for me. I can't go home. It's too late. What do you mean it's too late? Alice's new friend Kyle has a mysterious background and seems to be in some kind of trouble. So, of course, Richie looks up his birth and school records. Kyle's father is a spy that has spent time on the other side of the Iron Curtain, and his activities have attracted the attention of the KGB, putting Kyle in danger. The Whiz Kids' houses are again bugged, and Alice and Kyle have to be located before the bad guys find them. Written by Craig Buck, who wrote episodes of Cliffhangers, The Incredible Hulk, Buck Rogers, and V the series. Directed by Hollingsworth Morse in one of the final projects of his career. In the 70s, he worked on Julia, The Secrets of Isis, Shazam, Ark 2, Lucan, and Enos. Guest-starring John Riley. Peter Brown, Sharon Acker, and Brad Savage as Kyle. He was a child actor. You might remember him if you watched a lot of 70s, 80s TV like Salem's Lot and The Apple Dumpling Gang. Dan O'Hurley again appears as Carson Marsh. Now that he's a recurring character, he's going to be consulted every time Richie or Farley need an answer to something. In this episode, Richie hacks into the school computer system to look at a student's grades by guessing a password. We hear Ham sing at the school dance, and it actually sounds like Todd Porter. And the Heathkit hero robot makes a return appearance. Scenes deleted from syndication airings include showing the bullies filling Kyle's locker with water, the boys questioning Kyle's background, and one showing Richie and Jeremy's breakdancing skills in revealing Richie learned how to breakdance from Ralph. And Matthew and Jeffrey actually seemed to be breakdancing in this scene. Episode 17, Altera, aired April 28, 1984. A senator's young politically active daughter pulls the Wiz kids into an effort to save a local park from being turned into a manufacturing facility for a new military tank to be built by construction contractor NASCorp. Richie is immediately smitten by her, and this does not go unnoticed by the other kids. Farley arranges the kids to have a tour of NASCorp, and Richie sets up a backdoor password into their system, but this was secretly permitted by a certain NASCorp executive. When NASCorp outs Farley and the kids, Farley's expose on the tank comes under fire. Farley and Richie will need to call on all their resources, including Carson Marsh and the Athena Society, to get out of this one. Written by Lynn Barker, with an uncredited rewrite by Bob Shane. Story by Jill Gordon. Directed by George Finity. Guest stars Scott Brady, Robert Sampson, Frank McCarthy, Tammy Taylor as Laura Richie's love interest, and Dan O'Hurley as Carson Marsh. In a somehow fitting move for the final produced episode, 
NASCORP makes a return appearance as the construction contractor developing the land and building the manufacturing plant to produce the tanks. The name of the tank was the Rogue One, an unintentional Star Wars reference 30 years early. But it was not the only one. Richie's tropical fish were named Luke and Leia. The name Altera comes from the name Altair, which is a star in the constellation Aquila. This constellation forms the shape of an eagle and appears in the fall. The Altair 8800 computer was named after this star. Based on the IBM 8080 CPU, the Altair was featured on the cover of the January 1975 issue of Popular Electronics. Kit price $439, about $2,100 today, and micro-instrumentation and telemetry systems shipped thousands of units the first month it was released. It wasn't a computer as we recognize them today. It had no operating system. You had to program it by hand via front panel switches. Why is this relevant? A later clone of this design was the MSI 8080, seen in the movie War Games and in the opening segment of every episode of WizKids as it was used in the pilot, but dropped from view in later episodes. Richie refers again to his trapdoor password. This term has been largely dropped in favor of the term backdoor. In this context, a backdoor is a login that gives someone access to a system, typically without normal users or even system administrators being aware of it. An example of this sort of backdoor was used as a plot device in none other than War Games, in which Professor Falcon had inserted a hard-coded password into the Whopper, which gave the user access even to undocumented parts of the system. This sort of thing is possible in proprietary non-open source software, where the source code is not shared with the public to be able to examine. This episode is only available via syndication recordings, and I couldn't locate any deleted scenes for it, which there clearly are, as the story seems to wrap up quickly, with about five minutes of footage missing. As the episode ended, both Richie and Jeremy had girlfriends. As Laura returns Richie's feelings, and Jeremy began the episode, apparently already seeing Sarah, a previously unseen character. Tammy Taylor, who played Laura, was 26 at the time of filming, and Matthew was 17. Tammy Taylor shares her story in a Forgotten TV exclusive. So, I was 26 years old when I was called in to read for the part of Laura Calhane, the senator's daughter and love interest of Richie Adler, played by Matthew Laberteau. At this point, I had enjoyed a nice career, starting in 1979, having had contract roles on the soap operas. The Young and the Restless and Days of Our Lives and lots of fun guest stars on shows like Happy Days, Give Me a Break, Eight is Enough, and more. At my first reading for WizKids, which was in a room full of writers, producers, and the director, George Fennedy, one of them asked me how old I was. My agent had told me to tell them I was 20, as it obviously skews judgment when producers know your real age. So, terrified they would find me out, I told them I was 20. And one of them said, Okay, we'd like for you to come back tomorrow and read with Matthew. But you can't tell him you're 20. Say you're 18. He's very uncomfortable playing opposite an older actress for this part. 
Ha! Little did they know I was actually twenty-six and planning my wedding. So the next day I went down and read with Matthew, and it went great, and I won the role. On my first day on set, I showed up in the makeup trailer, and it turned out that I had worked on another job with the same hair and makeup people who worked on the show. They knew me and knew my real age, and I swore them to secrecy. So all week long I was pretending to be 18, and was hanging out with the rest of the young cast, ages 15 to 17, and having a great time. I got especially close with Jeffrey Jackett, the talented young actor who played Jeremy Saldino. We were buds, and he talked about my coming down to visit him in his hometown of San Diego, and introducing me to his friends there. Little did he know I was 26, and planning my upcoming wedding. Anyway, the shoot went great, Matt and I had a great time working together, and then the news came that the show had been cancelled. I was especially bummed because I'd been told that my character was possibly going to be recurring. But as it was, the rap party for the season turned out to be the rap for the series. I went to the party, still carrying on as though I was a 20-year-old, but the ruse finally got to be too much for me to continue. I had to come clean. So I took my bud Jeff aside and told him that I had something to tell him, and I showed him my driver's license. He said, What? You have a fake ID? And I told him, No, it isn't fake. He said, but this would mean you're 26 years old. And I had to tell him the brutal truth that yes, in fact, I was actually 26 and that I had been playing a part, playing a part, all week long. He was really shaken and didn't really talk to me the rest of the night. I've always felt badly about that. I asked him not to tell Matthew, but I don't know if he ever did. So that's my WizKid story. I had a fabulous time working on the show, and think about it every time I pass the Universal lot, which is five minutes from my house in Hollywood Hills. I would love to find out if Matthew ever heard the real story about his young love. Tammy, if we hear from Matthew, I'll let you know. Unfortunately, this episode had the lowest of the Nielsen ratings I was able to retrieve, a 6.6. Undoubtedly a result of spotty airings and the endless preemptions by this time. With only eight airings in four months, viewers were just as likely to find The Dukes of Hazard or an animated special airing in the time slot they were supposed to find WizKids. During May, CBS ran movies and specials in the WizKids time slot. On May 2nd, WizKids is announced as canceled along with CBS shows The Mississippi, Goodnight Beantown, Cutter to Houston, and One Day at a Time. But there was still one more show in the can CBS could air. Episode 18, May I Take Your Order, Please? Aired June 2nd, 1984. Saturday, the Wiz Kids are back, and undercover jewel thieves kidnap Alice to force Richie to help steal a priceless crown. Can Farley and the Wiz Kids save her in time? Saturday. Alice is now working at the Burger Barn and overhears what she thinks is a murder plot over the drive through speaker. When no one takes her seriously, not even Ham, she turns to Farley's colleague, Brenda. When her story is made light of in Brenda's column, Alice skips school to use Ralph to find the men at a production studio and is taken prisoner. Richie and Farley track down the men too, but the incident is passed off as actors running lines for a movie. 
The movie maker then blackmails Richie into helping him commit a jewel heist. Written by Tim Mashler, IMDb adds Jack Laird as uncredited writer. As I have no idea the source for this entry, I was unable to verify this. Mashler had worked on Bring Him Back Alive and went on to Crazy Like a Fox. Not mentioned is a rewrite by Bob Shane. Directed by Lawrence Levy. He has a total of six directing credits, which include episodes of The White Shadow and Hill Street Blues. Guest starring Bart Braverman, Madison Arnold, Larry Gelman, and Charles Napier. Gonna crack my knuckles and jump for joy. I got a clean bill of health from Dr. McCoy. (laughs) Andrea Elson remembers this as her favorite of the episodes, and it's not hard to see why. Her character is given more to do than usual, got to be kidnapped by Charles Napier, and it shows Alice was not incompetent at a keyboard, as we also saw in Episode 9. Richie prominently uses and fawns over a TRS-80 Model 100 laptop in this one, which was just introduced in 1983 and could run off four AA batteries. The Model 100 is often called an executive workstation. It is so small it can fit into an office in-out basket or a briefcase. Yet the Model 100 is available with 8K or 24K of computing power and can be upgraded to 32K by adding a special 8K RAM chip. It is truly portable because it can run on AC power through an adapter or run without external power on four AA alkaline batteries. And Alice hacks the DMV using Richie's brute force password cracker. Richie also uses a Dynalogic Hyperion, portable PC with dual disk drives that the bad guys have. Unlike the prior five, this episode did not feature Carson Marsh and the Athena Society. This is because the episode was shot in the first half of the season, when Bob Shane was still producing, thus his produced by credit. Another giveaway was the appearance of Farley's colleague Brenda, dating this one to a likely intended air date of December 7th, when CBS decided to preempt the show for holiday specials. As such, this was a throwback episode to simpler times before more heavy-handed stories of international espionage and the Athena Society complicated the kids' lives. Fittingly, the series ends just like the pilot, with the victorious whiz kids posing for a newspaper photograph. Already canceled a month earlier, WizKids finished the season ranking 82 out of 101 shows with an average Nielsen rating of 11.4 with an 18 share. We've only scratched the surface. Next time on the continuation of Forgotten TV's consideration of WizKids, we'll go behind the scenes and look at the cast before and after the show. Where was it filmed? What problems did the production face? How did all the technical wizardry work? Why IBM computers weren't seen on the show? What the real-life WizKids were up to and where are they today? And Forgotten TV exclusives. Paul Chihara tells the story behind the WizKids music score. And here, co-creator Bob Shane tell us the story of WizKids. More WizKids content you've never heard anywhere else. It's the topic that proved too much for one podcast, WizKids Behind the Scenes, next time 
on Forgotten TV. Want more Forgotten TV? Become a patron on Patreon and gain access to Forgotten TV Supplemental, additional podcasts that go beyond the material presented in the show, full-length interviews before show release, plus extended previews of podcasts before they are openly posted. Interviews with Bob Shane and WizKid actors are already being enjoyed by Patreon supporters. For as little as a dollar a month, you can become a producer and hear these additional podcasts. The link to join us over on Patreon is in the show notes. Your funds do make a difference, helping me pay for accounts and services needed to pay for hosting, license music, buy DVDs, and conduct research. All the ways you can support Forgotten TV are here in the show notes. This episode of Forgotten TV was executive produced by Will Welton and Doc Pinko. With producers Eric Fusco, Julio Capa, Rich Kunkel, and Ron. Also, thanks to all who support at the $1 and $2 levels. Forgotten TV is not affiliated with or authorized by CBS, Universal Television, Elephant Films, or any production company involved in the making of any TV show or film mentioned in this podcast. Links to Amazon are affiliate. All mentioned series and associated characters are the property of the respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. Audio clips are included for the purposes of review, commentary, and criticism only, and are not intended to infringe. This podcast is copyright 2020 Forgotten TV Media. The views and opinions expressed by guests are their own and may not reflect the opinion of Forgotten TV Media, its sponsors, or patrons. This podcast is intended for entertainment purposes only. Information presented is based on a combination of personal accounts, period news media, and website articles. All reasonable effort has been made to fact-check the information presented. However, Forgotten TV Media cannot guarantee the accuracy of every detail included and makes no representations or warranties for the content in this podcast and cannot be held liable for errors or omissions. And I'd like to thank the following YouTube channels for making the audio clips possible. The 1980s Guy, Mancini TV Classics, Movie Clips, Retro Gamer VX, The Rap Sheet, 11DB11, TV Rewind, Smalen, WREYTube, Sean MC, Lee Oliveris, I Am Not Goomba, Rob at C2009, and Adtari, classic computer and game commercials. With special thanks to Bob Shane, Robbie Rist, and Tammy Taylor for their contributions to this episode. With additional research by Ian Dickerson, Jordan Rumsey, and Jean-Francois Horvath and his WizKids blog. Sources of quotes and background information were obtained from vintage issues of the following magazines. Variety, Starlog, Popular Mechanics, Inter, Newsweek, InfoWorld, Video Games, PC Magazine, Computer World, as well as numerous period newspaper articles, as well as the documentary film The 414s, The Original Teenage Hackers. The music track Cold War Games by Gabriel Lewis is used under license from Epidemic Sound. Don't forget to like Forgotten TV on Facebook and follow Forgotten TV on Twitter. Visit Forgotten.tv for all content and links. This podcast is written, produced, and hosted by Chris Cooling, and this has been Forgotten TV. Forgotten TV